Welcome back to the Derek Diamond Experience Podcast, and today I'll be chatting with actor and singer Kirk Taylor. You may know him from the films Full Metal Jacket and The Sum of All Fears. He joins the show to talk about growing up in Connecticut, how stealing a bike as a teenager actually helped to change his life in a positive way, learning the art of acting and method acting at New York University, having a positive vibe on film sets, uh, working with Robin Williams on one of his final films, his upcoming film Revival, and advice that he has for aspiring actors. So really fun conversation, also a very deep conversation. We talk about you know, some of his past trials and tribulations, uh, his faith, and why he strongly believes in it. So it was a very enlightening conversation, and I thank Kirk for taking the time and being so open uh, to chat on the show about things that otherwise might be pretty sensitive to other people. So hopefully you guys enjoy it. Hopefully you guys get something out of it. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Kirk Taylor. Joined with my special guest this week, actor, singer, and composer, Mr. Kirk Taylor. How are you tonight? I'm very, very well, Derek. Good to be on with you. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, we were we were actually just talking uh, before we started recording. You've actually got uh, some family ties in the uh, the state that I'm in, uh, Florida. Yeah, yeah. I have some family down there in the Tampa area, in Jacksonville, and there's some other spots, too. Some, it seems like everybody's... Uh, Headed, congregating down in Florida for some reason, moving from Connecticut to Florida, moving from Las Vegas to Florida. It's really interesting how uh, everything's coalescing down there. I, I like it a lot. I've been down for Thanksgiving a couple times now, so I like it. It seems to be a popular destination for people as they get a little older and they go into retirement age. I know it's a popular vacation spot, especially the you know central to south Florida area with the beaches and all the amusement parks and everything. And it's interesting because I, I was listening to a podcast the other day, and there's a one of the hosts is from Florida, actually not too far from where I live, but he he did the opposite. He migrated from Florida to Las Vegas. So it, it's you get you get both sides too. Yeah, well, at least it's it's warm and dry. It's not. I mean, there's not going to be any snow because people that left uh, Connecticut they were they're really snowbirds because they still uh, come back sometimes. You know, during the seasons when it's not extreme weather uh but uh i just i just gave up the cold I, I just can't take it anymore i grew up shoveling snow in bridgeport connecticut which is about an hour and a half outside of new york city where i eventually moved and uh i had enough skiing and skating for the rest of my life <laughs> it's funny because you're talking with people who grew up in like the northeast or you know northwest and things like that it's almost the environment is almost the complete opposite from someone who grew up, you know, with pretty good accessibility to a beach, not really <laughs> okay. having much of a winter. I think I've I've seen snow, I think, twice in my entire lifetime. It snowed here once in the, I think, early to mid-90s. And I remember we, we got a was fairly... Say again? Was it, enough to, was it enough to make a snowball? What's funny is that me and my parents actually built a snowman. Like we actually had enough snow to you build did. a snowman and had a oh, snowball cool. fight with the neighbors and it was it was crazy. I mean the snow only lasted I think a day, maybe two at the most, but it's still to this day that's really the only time that I've seen snow. That's a good I like that kind of snowstorm. <laughs> then it melts away on its own. I could I could deal with that. 
So other than shoveling snow and skiing, what was it like growing up uh, in the New England area? Yeah, it was uh, it was a it was a great. You know, I'm really thankful for you know the life my parents provided for me. My father's a retired dentist. My mom was in real estate, and um, so they were able to provide for us, so that we really didn't want for anything. Um, and it was uh, it was. I mean, Bridgeport, where I'm from. Unfortunately, Paul Newman came there, and he shot a film when I was a kid called The Effect of Gamma Rays on the Man and the Moon and Marigolds. And uh, after he left, he lived in Westport. And so after he left Bridgeport, he wrote, Bridgeport is the armpit of Connecticut. Oh, so I realized boy. that it wasn't, it wasn't, he, he wasn't looking at it too highly. But I understand because it had been an industrial town. You know, they had GE, Sikorsky's, Remington Arms. Uh, and when wartime was over, a lot of things left town. And so people were, you know, it, it, it brought down, you know, we did well. We were doing pretty well. We were in a good part of town. We weren't rich by any means, but we did well. But people were struggling, you know. And so um, I got to see that side of it, too, which, you know, affected me later in my life because I realized that, um, you know, that when people are given wealth, abilities, and position, it's not just for themselves. I mean, that's sort of the way of the world where people are trying to hoard it for themselves and it's all about trying to get ahead. But you realize that uh, what, I think the reason we're given those skills and those resources is because we're supposed to be helping other people. So that was something that became uh, apparent to me even coming up. And that's, that's a good outlook to have because, you know, growing up also in, you know, I, my, my parents were the same way. They tried to do their best to make sure that, you know, I had everything that I needed but I knew friends who didn't grow up in that same environment. So it's, I, I was taught as well from an early age that if you have the ability to help people, then, then you should. Then you should. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's an important, that's, uh, I guess that's the golden rule in a nutshell, right? Absolutely. And you know, I, but, but it's interesting because I ended up needing some help myself at a certain point because I, Bridgeport was just kind of a little bit, it, it was a little bit, fallen down a little bit in some ways. And there weren't a lot of outlets for us as kids. I mean, we, in the early days, we played basketball across the street at Madison School, and we had, we had so much fun. But eventually, they closed down the, the basketball court, so we couldn't play. They wouldn't let us play baseball anymore. And that was, the, that was kind of a, brought me to a crossroad because I started doing things I shouldn't have done. I started stealing bicycles and different things, which you would think, really, a dentist's son out stealing bikes? I was actually at one point I was actually stealing a bike for somebody else in my misguided compassion got caught and that literally became the catalyst for me to change my life like I believe that very often problems uh obstacles often are opportunities you know there are opportunities these the things that seem to interrupt quote unquote your life and cause you duress and and upset you very often are opportunities to change, and I took it. When I saw my mother come down here with those red, blood-red eyes from crying at the police station, I was only 16, and uh, I literally stopped hanging around with the people she told me were trouble, and they were. I didn't want to admit it then. She used to say, birds of a feather flock together, which I really didn't like hearing. But it's true. They just didn't want to hear it. And after that, I literally turned my life around and ended up going to school a year or so later and going to New York University and leaving Connecticut. And I think I escaped. I mean, there have been a few escapees, like Steve Buscemi escaped from Bridgeport. Uh, uh, Brian Dennehy, my, uh, my good friend Michael Jai White is from Bridgeport as well. And so all of us made, you know, found our ways of escaping because 
a lot of the people that we grew up with didn't make it or, or just kind of just diminished, you know, in, in that environment. So I'm actually, you know, I've learned to embrace some of the difficulties. It's not hard. It's not always easy to do, but to embrace the difficult times, the, the, the challenges that you have, because it really helps to make you who you are supposed to be and can sometimes be, uh, can help you turn. I, I, a thought came to me at one point, I was going through some hard times and the thought was that the purpose of pain was not self-pity, but it was to inspire us to change. And so I'm still learning that lesson, to be honest, but it's something that did help me change. The pain of that situation helped me change and then started me on a journey, an artistic journey where I, I got to New York city. I went to the New York university and the old acting masters were still alive. People like Lee Strasberg, who had helmed the ship at the Actors Studio with Marilyn Monroe and James Dean and Montgomery Clift, uh, uh, you know, all the great actors, uh, Hoffman, Pacino, De Niro. He was alive, and so was Stella Adler, who was Brando's main teacher, and also um, Warren Beatty's teacher. So there was a host of great teachers in New York at the time. And so it was a what a blessing it was to land there at that season, because I became one, the very last generation to study with these masters and, you know, take that mantle that was passed on to them from from Russia with love, from Stanislavski to the United States and then from uh, United States around the world with the movies that these method actors or people influenced by the method, um, you know, performed in. And it, it changed the face of acting. So I got to study with these folks. So that was a fascinating transition. And I realized later on when I actually – I uh, started doing film work from there, and I, I did, you know, stuff like um, my first speaking role was in the Cotton Club, and it was a funny story where I literally, I didn't have any lines. I was an extra. I was a busboy at the Cotton Club, and Gregory Hines and Maurice Hines, Fred Gwynn, you know, uh, our favorite, uh, Herman Munster, uh, James Remar, I mean, just a host of great people. Diane Venora uh, were in this film, Richard Gere. And I had an idea for the scene. Now, I'm supposed to be cleaning dishes off the table, which I've been doing. And I, you know, just wanted to be bold about it. And I decided to go grab a champagne um, bucket and ask to improvise something in the scene. Now, that's insane. I'm on set with Francis Ford Coppola, right? Mm -hmm. Two ADs ADs grabbed me. And they said, what are you doing? I said, "Um, I just thought that, you know, Dutch Schultz, it's a special occasion. He should have some champagne. They said, we don't pay you to think. We pay you to clean dishes off the table when we say action. Go back to one. And so I started going back to my, I was humiliated, of course. I started walking back, and I can see Francis Ford Coppola to my right as I'm walking back. And I'm not that far from him. I mean, maybe I'm 50 feet. And I was like, this is crazy. But I turned and started running toward it. And the two ADs saw me. And they literally tried to cut me off. Like they ran from two sides of the room to cut me off. But I got to him in time to say, Mr. Coppola. And he turned and looked at me. I said, "Uh, sir, because it's such a uh, special occasion, shouldn't Dutch Schultz get some champagne compliments of the house? And he looked at me for the longest time, studying me. And then he said, this man has a creative idea. Put him in the scene. He said, bring out three buckets, uh, ice buckets which, for the champagne and bring out a case of champagne and set it up for him. And from there, I improvised lines in and there became my first uh, real success. You know, I'd come to, you know, I'd, I'd escaped the, I'd escaped Bridgeport 
um, and made it to New York, studied with some great people, and I had my first real validation. I'm like in a film with Francis Ford Coppola. And that became my that became the springboard for other things. So then it just it, it continued to take off. And I did stuff like um, The Last Dragon, which was a Barry Gordy produced for Motown. I played one of the pivotal roles in that crunch, one of the bad guys. And I was in Death Wish 3 with Charles Bronson shortly after that. And then I did Full Metal Jacket with the great Stanley Kubrick, which was I mean, it was an amazing it was, it was amazing. And I realized I was so thankful because I realized that that day when I decided to steal that bike, that there was a, there was a, I was literally at a crossroads. And if I continued that behavior, I would have ended like my friend, Bobby, who actually didn't get caught that day. He got away. Um, he went to prison for a long list of things that he had done. And you were stupid criminals. I would have done the same thing. So I really, uh, really, I really attribute it to the grace of God, to be honest with you that I was spared. He wasn't spared. And I, I take it as a, a high, high responsibility to, you know, do my, try to do my best and try to represent the light as much as I can. It's kind of crazy that all these life experiences that you've gone through all kind of point you in this one direction. Cause I, going back to even you saying when you got caught stealing the bike and your friend didn't in a way you getting caught, put you on the right path because and something that I, I think is really important and I try to to teach people this you know in, in life and in work as well you cannot have success if you don't learn from failure that's good because that's good and if you if you deny and if you don't learn from mistakes and failure then you're just destined to do the same thing over again so you know, you you learned that you shouldn't be doing what you were doing, even though, in a way, you I instantly thought of Robin Hood when you said that you stole the bike. Uh, that that's actually kind of kind of funny in a way. Um, but what I was, was I was going to give it to Junior or, Junior Ortiz? He needed a bike, <laughs> and I was going to. He was at my karate school. I was like, I'm going to steal a bike for Junior, which was insane. I mean, what are you thinking about? So that's why my mother had that look on her face. But I really was trying to. It wasn't for me. I didn't need it. I had a bike mm-hmm. and I was going to give it to my friend. And I'll tell you what, that, that, you know, you're so right about learning from mistakes. I think Thomas Edison said he made thousands of quote unquote mistakes in trying to create a light bulb, but mm-hmm. they were all, he, he found out a thousand ways not to make a light bulb until he found the way. And I think that one of his bulbs is still burning. <laughs> they said it's still burning all these years later that they, they had a special filament they put in, which just shows you that light bulbs do not have to really burn out, but you know, how how is GE going to make any money? Exactly. But yeah, learn you know learning from learning from mistakes, learning from pain. Pain is our friend. It's a friend. It is meant to inspire us to change. And it's people either get numb to pain and just put up with it, or they don't make the right moves. They just ignore it. But pain is there to help you. And so right, you're right. As you hit these bumps in the road, these problems, they become opportunities if you can embrace it. And so. I look like, in, 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 in the world's eyes, I look like the unlucky one, as you said. I got caught. I got humiliated. I was, my mother was so disappointed with me, and my father was shocked. He's like, what are you doing? And, but it was, it was the best thing that could have happened to me, because if I hadn't gotten caught, I wouldn't have changed directions. And poor Bobby, who was one of my best friends, we did everything together. Uh, Bobby didn't, wasn't so fortunate. Bobby didn't get caught. 
Mm-hmm. And Bobby ended up going to jail for everything from rape to, I mean, it was it, his, his, I, you could find him online. I found his picture. He looks scary. I said, that's my friend, Bobby. And I wrote him a letter. Listen to this. I had, um, there was a pastor in New York who people have probably heard of. His name is David, who was David Wilkerson. And David Wilkerson wrote a book called The Cross and the Switchblade that was made into a movie with Eric Estrada and Pat Boone playing David Wilkerson. And it was the story about him uh, coming to New York City and, and basically uh, starting Teen Challenge and, and, and helping people to recover from drug addiction and gangs. He was an amazing man, and he was talking about years ago about restitution, which is an Old Testament concept in, in, the, in the Hebrew Bible. And it was one where it says it's not enough for you to just say you're sorry. Because if you did something in Israel and you stole, you would have to return it plus add a fifth to it. If it could be fixed, it was fixed. In other words, you had to make it right. It wasn't enough to just be sorry and get caught. So he said, make a list of the things you need to make right. And one of the things I put on there was my friend Bobby. I said, you know what? I know we were both kids. Um, Both of us made mistakes, but I knew better. I've been taught better and I should have been a better influence. And so I wrote him a, I wrote him a letter. I wrote Bobby a letter about, uh, you know, being, being sorry of what had happened of asking him to forgive me. And I made a li- my list of restitution, Derek was so long. It was embarrassing. I had like legal size sheets, like three of them with stuff I had taken, things I had done wrong over the years. And Every single time I called somebody or did something to make it right, there was a girl in school that we had been involved. I was like 15. She was 15. But I hadn't treated her right, and I called her. I called her, and I said, Emily, this is Kirk. And she said, Kirk Taylor? I said, Emily, I just want to tell you that I'm really trying to take my faith seriously, and I didn't treat you right. I know we were both kids, but I still should have treated you better than I did, and I ask you to please forgive me. And this is like 17 years later. Her quote was this. She said, I feel like demons are letting go of my soul. That's a quote. And she talked about how her life had taken some bad turns and that she was just getting to the point where she was able to look up and say she had a higher power. She's going through a program. So I realized that that was, you know, it says faith without action dead. So, right, if you don't have a course, but you could say you want to, you want to, to get a job, but if you sit on the couch all day, you're not putting any, I mean, you may have real faith, but it's real it's dead faith though, because you have to activate it with, with action. And so I realized that I had to try to activate things with action. So that became part of what I tried to do. And, and I found that as I did those type of things, um, it's like, it's like heaven responded. Like there were things that happened. I can, t- and I could tell sometimes they were connected to the things I was doing. It wasn't easy to do it. I mean, I had a, I had to send a letter to Spike Lee because I had um, Spike Lee. We'd done school days and then a film called Jungle Fever, which I got cut out of, though. I'm completely cut out. I mean, my shadow's not even in there. But at the end of the film, it was like one in the morning, and there were some costumes that he had, they had picked out for me that I wanted to keep. Ruth Carter, who's, a, I think, an Academy Award-nominated uh, costume designer right now, and she had the costumes in my trailer. And I was like, you know, Spike always gives us this stuff anyway. Hey, I'm going to take it. So I took it. And that ended up on my restitution list. I was like, it doesn't matter that it was small. It's not right. I shouldn't have done it. It's technically, I got to say the S word, it's stealing. It's stealing. I stole again. Oh, no. 
oh, I got to write Spike. And so I wrote Spike a letter. I said, Spike, I said, I'm taking my faith seriously these days. And I just wanted to make things right. Please forgive me for taking this stuff. I know you would have given it anyway. Here's a check for 75 bucks to pay for whatever it would have cost me. And, and by the way, that's it. at that time, 75 bucks was a lot of money mm-hmm. to me. It was like, I didn't have 75 bucks to send it. Spike Lee doesn't need 75 bucks, but that's not the point. I had to make it right. And I added a fifth to it by just giving him a little testimony and telling him, I said, listen, man, I don't know how you, what your faith, where's your, where your faith is these days, but know that I'm praying for you and your family. And I hope that you make the right choices. And I sent it to him. Uh, I got a letter back from him. Dear Kirk, what a surprise. Thanks for fessing up. Love, Spike. And he cashed my check. I was shocked. I said, wow. he cashed a check? I was kind of hoping he didn't cash the check. I said, I could really use that. But, you know, I had that kind of stuff happening. So that's it's been kind of a, 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 a artistic, faith-filled walk as I've you know, negotiated things in life and, and uh, you know, trying to move forward and, and – uh, be of some service. I think that actors ultimately the ultimate servants. I mean, I know that we these days think of actors as these big celebrities and they're, and they're kind of like our royalty in the United States, but I don't look at it that way. I think that, you know, we're as actors, we serve the playwright or the, you know, author, the screenwriter um, to try to bring their vision to light. Um, and in a sense, we, we, we hold up humanity for the world to see. I mean, how many times you watch a film and see something, somebody weep or someone uh, going through something and you know that it's a deep, they, they're really going through it in a way. Like you don't know how they did it. And so what a job and what a, what a privilege we have as, as actors to be given that access into people's lives. So this whole, you know, I'm a big star, I'm bigger than you, I, you know, you're down there, I'm up here. I don't believe that at all. You know, and, and a lot of that is, is yeah, maybe I didn't always see it as clearly as I do now, but I always kind of felt that it was a, a position, a servant position in a sense, which is, sounds a little contrary to the, the norm, but it's one in which we get to serve. And um, this uh, Richard Boleslavsky was a, a Russian from the Moscow Art Theater. He worked with Stanislavsky, and he came and brought the Stanislavsky system in the 1920s to the United States. Who was in his class? Lee Strasberg who was going to be part of the, the transformation of acting in the United States. And Richard and Boleslavsky said this, and I, I'll never forget it. He said, he said, acting is the human soul, me, the life of the human soul receiving its birth through art. The life of the human soul receiving its birth through art. Through art. So through art, we do give birth. I felt like I gave birth to Peter's heart and soul. So giving birth through art, um, and that's what we are privileged to do as actors. And we can experience many, many things without having to go through some of the real perils that go along with it. And the, the opportunity to serve and to touch people's lives, it's, um, it's, a, great, it's a great profession. It's a difficult profession, but it's, it's a great profession. Well, and to give a little background on why I fell in love with film is because it, in, a way, in a way you hit the nail on the head is that it provides in a way an outlet or an escape for people to mm-hmm. put their normal lives on hold. They might be going through, you know, a bad breakup or family issues, things like that. Yeah. They can just yeah. put that away for a couple of hours and just get lost in the story. And that's, that's personally why I fell in love with, you know, film, television, and, and that medium. And it's associating, you know, good memories. You know, I, when I watch 
certain shows or certain films, I think of sitting on the couch with my parents or sitting at the theater with my parents and watching those things and just having a good time. So I, I, I applaud anyone who, you know, puts forth, cause I, I've, I know that it's not easy to make, you know, these projects, but I'm always grateful for it. Yeah. That's a, I think that's a great attitude. I, I hold the same kind of gratefulness and that's why even if I go to see a show where I don't really like the show or like the performances, I always can say, to that brave soul that decided to get on the tightrope, even if they fell, even if they stumbled, they didn't make it across, I can always say, congratulations. Thank you. Because they're still, they're trying to share themselves. They, they're, they're not the timid souls that stayed home. And uh, that's, that's, that's a big deal. And so that's why I believe that artists, I mean, there are directors who, I've been on sets with directors who really didn't treat actors well. And they, they're, they're creating, they don't understand that they're creating an environment that is is contrary to the artistic environment, the artistic expression that they're looking for. If you make people feel uncomfortable, afraid for their jobs, I had that on Death Wish 3 with, uh, with Michael Winter, and I like Michael quite a bit. He was a lovely man, but he can be a bully on set. And my first day filming with Charles Bronson, I think we were in England, uh, but it was one of my first scenes, and I played a character called The Giggler, who was one of the main bad guys, and I'm super, super fast. Nobody could catch me. Bronson sends away for a special gun to kill me. So in my first day, I'm walking on, I'm, I'm so excited. I got this cool costume on, I'm in my twenties. I'm like, I got a film, I'm, I'm, you know, London, England. Oh, this is amazing. And Michael Winter was calling me. I kind of heard something, but I didn't turn because I was so focused on just getting my mind ready and just getting ready to start shooting. He said, Mr. Taylor, Mr. Taylor. I didn't turn yet. I'm still thinking he screamed, Mr. Taylor. Your part is diminishing rapidly. And I remember at that moment, I was like, whoa, this dude is threatening my job because I didn't turn quick enough. What would happen if I really did something risky or crazy? What if I did some of these crazy moves I was going to do for, the, for this character, the giggler? What if I was, took some chances? No way. Nope. I'm going to do a good job. But I'm not going to take any crazy chances. And really what you want is to create an environment for artists where they're willing to take chances because they know you got, they got your back, that, that you have their back. So the, the, the actor says, I can go, I get like Steven Soderbergh as a director that people love to work with. Spielberg is as well because they created an environment where it's safe. They're looking out for you. You know that. And you know that if, something, if you try something that doesn't look great, they'll say, mm, pull it back 50%. Or let's try this instead. Or here's what I want you to consider. They'll give you an adjustment. But they're not going to knock you over the head because you didn't turn in time. And so that was just an example of, um, you know, a situation where a director does not understand the artistic spirit, doesn't understand the creative process. I mean, there are some who can flourish under those kind of uh, conditions, but I find that most don't do their best work. And uh, the, the Phil Robinson, who directed, uh, you know, Field of Dreams, Some of All Fears, uh, the Robin Williams, uh, Angriest Man in Brooklyn Project, and Freedom Song, that's a guy who knows how to get out of your way. That's a guy who brings a tone to the set that makes everyone feel wonderful just to be there. It's like you're so happy. You'll do, I would do anything for Phil Alden Robinson. He's amazing. So 
that's a guy who created an environment where you did feel safe, where you deal, did feel appreciated. And he said at one point that wasn't his natural inclination. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, years ago, in one of my earlier films, I would come in and, and be complaining about things that were going on with me, how I was feeling, et cetera. And one of the ADs said, we don't want to hear that. You're here to set the course for this. You set the tone from the top. And if that's what you bring in, that's what you're going to get from everybody else. But if you can bring love and joy here and you can bring patience here, when we can see that you are in a good state, it helps everybody. And that I inherited that Philip Alden Robinson, the guy who had learned that lesson. I didn't get the grumpy one. He used to come to set. I don't know if it was on Field of Dreams or before that. I think it was before that that he learned that lesson. And so, you know, I think we just have to appreciate our artists. I mean, they are important to our lives and to our society. And this goes with not just acting, but I mean, I heard the guy from the Phil, uh, the, the Philharmonic in um, San Francisco talking about art. Now, of course, his art was music. But I think it applies. He said, like what you said about being able to escape into a theater and be in a different world and leave your problems aside. He said the the highest purpose, the highest aim of art is to glorify God and to refresh the human spirit. To glorify God and to refresh the human spirit. And think about how music does that. But it's not just with music. Many things can refresh you. And I would add that even to challenge the soul, because there's, there, there are things in art that can challenge us too, to, to be better, to be our better selves, to be our better angels, to be more kind, to see the error of our ways. So I think it's to glorify God, to refresh the human spirit and instruct the soul of men and women. So I think that ultimately creates a, comp- a pretty comprehensive picture of that high uh, use of art. And not every film hits that, obviously. But, um, you know, I'm one that doesn't separate God from other things, you know, like he's part of this and he's part of that. Not like, ah, go to church on Sundays and then just do what I want to do and everything else is up to me because I don't believe that. So even in art, even in acting, I've seen, you know, divine things happen and uh, felt I was used in a divine way as well. And I say that humbly because it was it's overwhelming when you see it later on, you're like. And I've even had, you know, I've even had, I call them, I heard an author talk about God winks, which is basically when things happen where you get a wink, like God is saying, see, I told you, or, you know, I'm here, like the Robin Williams project. And I had it happen on uh, the, uh, a film I did called MacArthur Park back in, I think in the 90s, I did that one. It was with Billy Worth, Miguel Nunez, some really good people in it. And I played a cop, uh, Officer Randolph Davis. And I have like three or four scenes and I watched that film. We, we went to Sundance. So I'm at Sundance. It's cold, but I'm at Sundance and uh, they're showing our film. And as I watched the film, it, it was beautiful film. It was Billy Worth's directorial debut. And he was an actor in the lost boys years ago. And he did a lot of stuff as an actor, but he started directing. And I watched that film, Derek, and I literally, felt that that wasn't me. Like I, I was like, I was like, I believe that guy. I know it was me, but it was like something I had transcended something with that role. It was something about the stillness of it and the truth of it and the, the ability to listen and connect with that other actor. And at the end of the film, the credits are rolling and I'm literally like, I'm smiling. 
I did a really good job. And the lights come up. Or, no, before the lights come up, the, the credits are running. But, but Derek, my name's not in the credits. I'm not in the credits at all. They rushed to get to Sundance. They forgot. And they said, we're so sorry. Now, you, you can imagine what that does to a young performer. I mean, I mean, you, you work hard to even get an audition, let alone get a role, let alone have it end up on the screen with you still on it to have your name cut out. So I remember at that screening in Sundance, I got a, I got a little bit of a God wink, and then I got a big one back in L.A. The first wink was they made us come up front. I did not want to be up front after that. They said, cast, come up front. I was like, oh, I'm so embarrassed. My name's not there. And so I went up front. And I just kept quiet and they asked a bunch of questions and then finally got to the last question. Okay. One more question. Someone asks it. And then some guy decided he was going to ask a question anyway, even though it's over. And he puts his hand up and starts waving it. And they said, Oh, okay. Okay, sir. What? He said, I don't know who it was, but whoever the guy was that played the cop, his righteousness shined through. And I remember looking at him saying, what did he say? My righteousness shined through. And it was like a wink, like, it was almost like I, I got like the beginning of a wink. And then we did a screening in L.A. And at the screening, because Sidney Tamia Poitier, the, the daughter of Sidney Poitier, was in the film. And Sidney was there. And so I'm at a, a, a screening. I invite my friend Michael Jai White and, and Gina Bolton. And we're sitting there. And the film comes. And I feel the same way. I did a great job. I believe that cop. And when the credits roll, what did I do? I put my head down. I said, maybe they won't notice I'm upset. They won't see me react to not being in the credits. I'm just going to. Dropped my head. I did. Lights came up. I went outside. I shook it off. And I'm standing there talking to Mike and to Gina. And uh, I look out to my left and I see someone coming out of the room where we just saw the screening. I see a head and he's kind of tall. Oh, that's Sidney Poitier, I said to him. And then he kept coming toward me. And I'm like, is he coming over here? Oh my gosh, it's Sidney Poitier. And he walks up to me and he said, excuse me, did you play the cop? I said, oh, oh, uh, Hi, Mr. Poitier. Um, yes, yes, I, I did. He said, I watched you very closely, and I did not know if you were a real cop or if you were an actor. And that is meant to be a compliment to you. I thought to myself, that cop should be an actor. And I said, oh, sir, you, <laughs> you have no idea how much that means to me. They, you know, they left my name out of the credits. And so he said, where you're going in your career, he interrupted me, where you're going in your career, that will not matter the presence that you bring to the screen. And at that point, Derek, I literally ran out of capacity to receive any more compliments from such a great man. I couldn't, I didn't want, I couldn't take it in. It literally, the sound went out and I was watching his lips move and thinking, this is Mr. Tibbs thinking of his character from in the middle of the night. <laughs> That's all I could think of. I was just watching his lips move. And then he, he said something. I think he shook hands with me and he left. And I turned to my friend Gene and I said, I hope you caught the end of that because I didn't hear a word he said after the presence you bring to the screen. That was it for me. And so I realized that was a wink where God was saying, yeah, I know. I got you. I would have taken that compliment over a million dollars. And I, I wrote him, I think about the, one of the great actors of our, of any generation, Sidney Poitier is saying that he didn't know if I was, if I, I, I did such a good job that he thought I was a real cop and not an actor. I was blown away. And so I wrote him a letter card or something, and in it, it was written, the final test of a gentleman is how they treat those that can be of no benefit to them. And I said, thank you so much for being a gentleman and being so, so generous and thoughtful. So I love that guy. 
and he, he, he did something great for me because I got a compliment that how many people have ever heard that kind of compliment from anybody, let alone uh, um, a great star like someone of that stature, some of that stature, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a tremendous big deal. And so I realized, again, I got a wink. I got a wink in, in, um, at the festival with the guys saying that righteousness shine through and, and an even bigger one. So the wink was complete. That was both eyes, I guess. I got winked at from both eyes. I think that's called a blink, but we'll call it a wink. Um, yeah, so you got a God blink. Got a God blink. <laughs> or I even was calling it, I called it a God nod at one point. Yeah, I got a God nod. Um, yeah, so I, I definitely did. So it's been a fascinating journey because I'm not a real religious guy, but I'm a very spiritual guy. So, um, you know, I, I have the ability to, to move like water through situations sometimes and, uh, you know, and observe and learn and, and, and walk through life and, and try to be the person I'm meant to be. But without, you know, trying to keep the pretension down. That's pretty awesome praise from, I don't know if you could get much higher praise than from someone of his stature. I don't think, that's you know, crazy. I don't think you really could. I mean, it's sort of, it is the, it's the top of the mountain. It's like, like I wanted to, I wanted to say you, you didn't know. He said, I watched you very closely. You didn't know if I was an actor. You thought I was a cop. I thought, to be honest, I told you when I saw the film the first time at Sundance, I thought I was a cop. And interesting because the one thing about the method with Strasberg and Adler that we're, they're known for is research. Stanislavski did it. He, he, he had a performance where he locked himself. He was playing a prisoner. He locked himself in a dungeon for I don't know how many days he was down there. He used real swords that were sparking as they fought during fights. I mean, he was great detail. He would put into his performances and helped his actors do. And so we as method actors here, and there are different branches of that. I mean, the, the, if you really wanted to call someone a method actor, you're really talking about Strasberg's work because he, called, he named it the method. He took some of Stanislavski's stuff and he added his own things. And he was asked, why did you call it the method instead of just the system? He said, because I wanted credit for the things that I added. And he was big on research. When he was doing Hyman Roth in The Godfather, he played, out, he played the famous Jewish gangster. His, his wife, Anna, said that he, she talked about the process of him changing to be able to do that role. So, you know, I took uh, my cue from him and from others that, you know, you know, De Niro and Pacino and Hoffman, all those guys. I took my cue from them and I did exhaustive research and it was research that was dark. I mean, at first I was up for one of the crack addicts because this takes place in MacArthur Park and it deals with crack addiction, the beginning of crack addiction. When it first came, it started devastating the community. And so I spent time with drug addicts. I spent time. I went to a crack den where this dude had been up for 48 hours naked in the bed and these uh, women flitting around him. It was just, I saw stuff there that, to be honest, some of it I wish I hadn't seen, you know, but it did give me something. And he said that my, my audition for the, for the drug addict, he said, you really had the tweak, you know, which is something that happens when you smoke crack. Everybody has a, a, their own tweak. There's one woman I saw that when she smoked, she starts sweeping. She's got to sweep. Another guy starts defending himself because the first time he smoked, he got punched. I mean, some people grind their jaws. Um, so I saw those things, and I, I, and I did research on cops later because they eventually said, we want you to play a cop. I said, a cop? And then I realized that this cop was not a regular cop. This guy, Officer Randolph Davis, was in the Crips. I think it's called the Roland 60s. That was the tattoo I had put on my forearm. And this guy was a, was a former gang member. 
And so that's why I was able to get that grittiness and that steel in who he was, immovable, but compassionate, because he understood this kid was trying to escape the life, was trying to escape his downfall through, you know, addiction and through gangbanging and stuff. So because of that research, I brought another, I'm a layer that I didn't anticipate bringing into the cop. And there was some stuff that was cut that, or actually we didn't even get the shoot part of the scene that would have even explored his gang because the kid eventually sees the Roland 60s thing on my arm. Um, and I took that role so seriously. And when I was on set, they did have some real rough folks that were there. Some that were even being used in the film. It was, they were tough. And it was a, it was a tough crowd. One guy had just gotten out of prison. He still had his prison stuff on. And at one point I was going to, I was near my squad car and I was going to walk around them to go get some, some food at the craft table. And I realized I didn't want to walk in front of these guys. And then I thought to myself, if you, after all that you've prepared to do, you could sabotage everything right now by walking the other way around, the long way around to the table. If you do that, they will take your heart and you will be broken and we won't be able to play this role. Go right. And I walked up to these guys. I said, turn around, put your hands on the top of the roof, put your hand on the hood. And they all turned around and put their hands on the hood. And then they looked back at me and I smiled and they started, Oh my gosh. Oh man! <laughs> but I had to do that. Well, and that's something that's always intrigued me about acting in general is the amount of research that goes into, like, say you you get the role as a certain character, how how deep into the psyche of that character that you go, and the extent that I see and hear stories about what some actors do. It's yeah. it's an amazing it's an amazing thing. Something I did want to ask you about with your uh, your teaching, I was looking at a list of your your former students, and one that really stood out to me was uh, Jesse L. Martin. Who? Oh yeah. Because I'm I'm a basically a, a nerd. Like I love you know the like Star Wars and comic book type stuff. I know he I know him as uh, Joe West from the Flash show, That's and right. he's fantastic. Yeah, he's fantastic on that show. That's right. He was, uh, I believe he was part of the NYU program with some of the others. Chandra was, uh, Chandra Wilson from Grey's Anatomy was in the NYU program and I directed her. Ken Marino, who's working a lot now, I directed him as well. And uh, Jesse, I had in class. I love him. He was a great kid. He worked hard. Um, he, 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 he showed up. He showed up and he showed out with the doors that opened. He was on Law and Order. I don't know if you saw him in episodes. He was in Law and Order for years. And there was talk about it. And then I saw him on The Flash, too. I said, Jesse, yeah. I ran into him here. He's got a great voice. He does. And he was in Rent years ago on Broadway. I don't know if you know that. He mm -hmm. was a, he's a singer. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I've heard stories for years. I mean, I don't know where it is. But he was supposed to do the Marvin Gaye story. I don't know if that's happening or if people have forgotten about it. But that would be, that'd be really cool. And maybe they'll call me on set to coach him as well. Um, that would be a pretty amazing story. That's a pretty compelling story with the arc of that life, that great genius. Uh, and I think he'd be great in that role. Right? Wouldn't that be amazing? I heard that years ago. So, I mean, I don't know what. I forgot when I ran into him. He told me he was doing something, and it's been years now since I've been in touch with him. But a sweet, a sweet guy and a sweet, talented man. And to, to follow up about The Angriest Man in Brooklyn, because I, I was looking on IMDb, and that was one of the last movies that Robin yeah. Williams did before he passed away. Yes, it was. What was it like being on set with him? Because I know he, he provided between you know his acting, his, his comedy, he provided a lot of 
laughter and happiness for a lot of people. Because I, I know a lot of people when he passed away were just social media was just weeping at him passing. So what what was it like being on set with him? Yeah, you know, and they're the, the weeping because a man that brought, as you said, the man that brought so much joy was in so much pain. That's the thing you realize. Um, I was I have a scene partner I was working with, my friend Sue Ann, who we're working on a scene together now in a class that I'm part of. Um, and when I told her about Robin Williams, she started weeping. Like, this is yesterday. Just openly tears streaming down her face and saying how much I and, and, you know, to tell you that it hurt me as well. It was... I had met him once before, many years ago. I was an extra in a movie called The Survivors with Walter Matthau. And I was in a line waiting to get to like an unemployment line, trying to get to the desk clerk to get my paperwork. And he is trying to ask a question, and he's trying to cut into the line. And um, there's a woman that has a line to him that says she's going to bite off his finger. and create, But I didn't have any line. But... I found a way because there was someone who had really done me wrong recently and uh, around that time would rip me off and done some stuff. And when he came even close to me to look to see if I would let him in, I gave him a look. I was going to tear his face off. I mean, that's how I looked. And I didn't know how effective it was, but I know I felt it because very often you can have, you can have an experience and it doesn't really show on the outside. And that's part of the training too. It's like, okay, well not just feel it, but express it. But I, I, I was so in the moment, I didn't even know. And in between takes, I never stopped. Even in between takes, when he said cut, and he was walking around, I still glared at him. Like, I'm going to tear your heart out. And uh, the end of the take, and they said, finally, cut. That's a, that's a print. We got it. He, I turned to him and smiled, and he went crazy. He, went, he started running around the room. He said, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. He smiled. He smiled. Oh, my God. <laughs> You made me feel like dead meat. I felt like dead meat. He said, oh, my God. Did you get a close-up? Did they give you a close-up? I said, uh, I don't know. What, was I supposed to get a close-up? I was so excited. And he's, it, he just went on and on, just gushing about, because I, I did scare him. I, he said, I, I, he said I, the quote was, I feel, I felt like dead meat. Because that's what he looked like to me. Or that's what it was going to be if he thought he was going to cut in line on me. So when I met him years later, after that big that that situation where you know this divine um, uh, turn of events, where I end up in front of Robin Williams and Mila Kunis, uh, he was subdued. Now I knew him from back then. Of course, there were other factors that made him more kooky then, but it was I mean, in between takes, he was telling jokes on the first in the, on the first film, The Survivors. <clears throat> he was nonstop. He was like. He was on like a, a 45 record being played at 78. I mean, he was just, he was going for it all the time. Or a 33, a 33, if anybody has a turntable out there now, playing at 78, he was too much. I loved it though. We laughed the whole, I mean, well, everyone else laughed the whole day. I was so mad that I didn't laugh until later. And then I had a laugh. So we're on set. We're sitting down to have lunch. We did part of the scene and then we sat down and he was sitting, he was having lunch with me and with Phil and a few other people. And at one point, he tells a joke, and in it was some kind of rock, I did like a, a Jamaican Rasta accent, Yaman, and said something, something, something. It was a great accent, too. I remember, I forgot who he was for a second, and I started laughing, and I said, wow, that was good. Well, wow, it's Robin Williams. Of course, it's a great accent. It was perfect. It was so subtle. And then he went back into himself, and I saw a melancholy. I just clocked it. I clocked it. He, he looked, I don't know, he just looked sad. 
And um, he didn't ever think anything. I said, at the end, I told him I had met him before. He didn't remember it. And at the end, I said, I said, uh, I said, I said, Robin. He said, Yeah, Chief. He said, oh, What, Chief? And I said, uh, Can I take a picture with you? And so I took this really uh, sweet, sweet picture of him, and I took one with Neil Kunis. And then after he passed, I mean, of course, our film didn't do well. They didn't put any money behind it. They had it in theaters for a week. But they still even said this company made the genius decision to not advertise it, thinking it's going to sell itself because Robin's in it. I saw one ad, and it was in theaters for at least a week, if not a little less. I had one friend that saw it in theaters, and it's with Melissa Leo, the Academy Award winner. Peter Dinklage from Game of Thrones is in it. Uh, 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 James Earl Jones, the voice of Darth Vader is in it. I mean, we had a great cast, and it's funny. It's a flawed film, but it's funny. And there are some turns in it that are outrageous. And they took us out of theaters quickly. That was basically, a, he's an A-list actor. He asked for that film. He, he was coming back. He divorced his wife. He had gotten a new manager. They asked him, what would you like to do next? He said, well, there is a script called The Angry Spain in Brooklyn. I like this. said, well, guess what? We represent the, the writer and the author. It was based on the 90 minutes of Somebody Blum as an Israeli film about a guy who, who finds out he has a half an hour to live or 90 minutes to live. And so um, he asked for that film. It tanked. Not his fault. There were some things that could have been done to help, but it tanked. And then his series, The Crazy Ones, was canceled. And so with all that he was dealing with, you know, Phil told me over lunch recently that he had some kind of rare brain disease that his wife, they, they had done an autopsy, and his wife said that he, was, that he was sick. And he didn't know why. And Phil talked to him a little while before he committed suicide, and Phil said he didn't sound good. And so he said, I asked him, I said, Robin, are you, it was over the phone, well, are you okay? And he said, oh man, I got to get my shit together. I got to get my shit together. But so in other words, he didn't even know why he was going through. Because as with the traumatic brain injuries for football players, martial artists, whatever, boxers, you know when they find out, right? When they have to cut your head open. There's no indication. They don't found a test to really let you know what's wrong with someone's brain with those kind of diseases. Just such a shame. So poor Robin was suffering and didn't know why, why his memory, uh, his emotions, the, the funny man, the funniest man at the party is, you know, they say the tears of a clown. That's what that was. And he was desperate in it. So it was, it was a, a wonderful experience to be around that man. He was very generous. He was very kind. Even in his melancholy, he was open and, and receptive and did a great job in the scenes. He has some great, some great moments. And so I know a lot of people are left brokenhearted about him. I couldn't really watch any of his films for a while. And they used to say, there's nothing so dead as a dead actor. That was an old thing from way, way back. And of course, now that changed. That's why we can still different recording techniques we can still go back and listen and enjoy and uh, I'll be starting to watch Robin Williams films again I started to watch little things because it's just he's so brilliant he's such a uh, such a wonderful a wonderful uh, comic and person mm -hmm. for sure uh, so as far as acting goes um, what's next for you you know you recently did a revival the experience you have all this these accolades from previous films and television shows, uh, what, what's next on your plate? 
first of all, we found out that we did some pre-screenings in December of 2018 to see how we did in Chicago, New York, Atlanta, Washington, D.C. And we had some sellout crowds. We had great response. They decided to regroup and re-release the film in April. Um, so the film's going to be out again in April around Easter, which is perfect for the subject matter, right? It's it's absolutely perfect. And uh, people can, you know, it's, it, the, the theater listings will be revivalthemovie.com. And people can find out where it's going to play. You can ask for it to come to your city. But they're going to give it a really big push. And so I'm excited about that because it's a film that, it really does start the discussion about at least the conversation. My, 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 my cousin Sterling Hoffman, who's an atheist came to see it and he was weeping. He said, that might be one of the, the, the very best film I've ever seen. And he said, and I came with trepidation. I was like, I'm coming to support my cousin, but it's religious, but it wasn't, it, no, it didn't. It, listen, if it didn't turn off, if you knew Sterling, if it didn't turn off Sterling Hoffman from Maryland, he's a high end photographer there. If it didn't turn him off, then anyone can enjoy this and just see the humanity in it and, and, and start the discussion. You know, it doesn't mean it's going to convince you of anything, but at least it should open up you to, to, to think about it and maybe talk about it with people. So, you know, I really never considered faith from that perspective before. So that's, this film is going to be out in April. And in the meantime, I'm, um, you know, I'm getting all my things set up on social media. I just, I put myself on Instagram and, Instagram and uh, Twitter as I am Kirk Taylor. So I'm, I'm on there. I got my fan page. I have my website, Kirk Taylor official.com. So I'm setting up everything, anticipating something happening from this project. And in the meantime, I'm recording. Um, I'm in the studio with a <clears throat> wonderful musician named Kevin Tony. Um, and Kevin Tony started off in a group at Howard university called Donald bird and the blackbirds. And they did songs like walking in rhythm or Rock Creek Park, some really iconic stuff, kind of jazz, R&B field tunes. And so he's uh, helping me. I play keyboard, but he plays better. And so he's helping me to do some arrangements on some of my songs. Uh, I have a duet that I'm putting together called A Simple Song and, uh, and some others. So I'm going to be releasing some of this music. I'm going to either I'm going to do it through like Spotify or on some of the other platforms that are available. And maybe I'm going to you know, put them all together on a, um, uh, you know, CD. And I have a, I also have some songs. Uh, one of my early influences was my uncle John and I carry him with me, you know, speaking about carrying people with you, he really influenced me a lot. And he was a, a brilliant musician. He is the most famous composer that people do not know that they know. Years in the 1950s, he was playing with Horace Silver, the Verdian pianist. And he went to a piano player's party and made the mistake of playing his uncopywritten song called Blue Rain. <clears throat> and it had Art Tatum there and Errol Gardner and Horace Silver and other great pianists. And so <clears throat> they came over to the piano and they loved it. And what is it called? Oh, it's called Blue Rain. Play it again. Can I play it now? Yeah. And about a year later, he said he heard it on the radio. And Sarah Vaughn was there. Wow. And it was called Misty. You know, look at me. I'm as helpless as a kitten up a tree. That's Uncle John's tune. So literally, people wow. have been listening to his melody. Think about it all over the world and they don't even know who that's insane isn't that crazy so that's one of the reasons yeah. why i'm kind of dedicated and motivated derek i gotta get because i've written like a hundred songs myself i have another one of his that he gave me that he wrote for nat king cole back in 1953 that nat king cole loved so won't you never ever say you love me and nat never did it uncle john missed the meeting and when that when that saw him he said well sorry man but great tune great tune 
And oh, Uncle John said he never, he didn't want anybody else to do it. I gave it to Natalie Cole, but she got sick, you know, and it was just not the timing for that. So, you know, I don't know if I'm going to sell it. I don't know if I'm going to send it over to Tony Bennett or Buble or Harry Connick or I don't know. We'll see what, what, how, how God leads. He, you know, it says what he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. So I'm looking for the open door. And in the meantime, I'm just, um, I'm back in acting class. Like when I'm not teaching, because I coach still, if I'm not on stage or if I'm not in the film, I like to be in class. So I got my buddy, Barry Papik, who's a, a teacher who was in Lee's class with me. We were in Stella Adler's class, script interpretation class, and other uh, teachers in, in New York at the time. So I sit in on his classes. So I'm in class. I'm uh, starting to audition, just kind of getting things ready. It feels like a building time, like 2019 is going to be, I need to really shore up the foundations and make sure that the the levees are going to hold. <laughs> awesome. Um, two more questions. Sure. Uh, first one, what advice could you give to anyone who's aspiring to be an actor or actress? The first thing is to really search your heart. Is that something that you really want to commit to? I mean, I would say that it would really have to be something that you were super, super passionate about and passionate to the degree that you're willing to do the work that needs to be done. There's a lot of competition out here now. And for you to start getting some training, for you to really start to look into the field first and understand, you, you can read things about what other actors say. And, and maybe there are actors you can talk to. Uh, go to see plays, go to see film, try to figure out where your niche is. And of course, the ingredient that I put in since I was a kid was prayer. I would pray. And I, I really believe that I was called. I mean, I got a clear message. I was called to do this. So I was like, wow, really? Because it's not, I mean, that's why each time I told you that I've come to a point where I was ready to give it up, I got called back in. So that was part of the initial thing, which is like, is this really what I'm destined to do? Is this something that I need to do? Do I need to do this? That's more along the line of somebody that should should move into this because it's not an easy uh, path. And if you do do it, you need to really get a, get a good support system of people that will keep you balanced, of people that you listen to, that care about you. Uh, I don't care where you have to find them, if it's in family or if it's in friends, to have some accountability and to have some help because it's a it's like walking through a minefield in in the, in the, the, this business. It can be a minefield at times, and if you don't have a good strong foundation and uh and have your head on straight and have a heart that's right um it's it's not gonna it's not gonna be easy for you it's not gonna be easy anyway but it's gonna be less easy so i'd say first of all is to check is as uh mcadoo used to say check yourself before you wreck yourself so check yourself first <laughs> <clears throat> see if this is what you need to do then start to look into it and research it. In fact, that could be the process of you discovering whether you're supposed to do this or not. Because I know people that have gone into acting in my classes, and they ended up loving it, but not as an actor. They ended up producing. Another one girl that's writing. Another one that turned into a photographer, but they, they de developed their artistic sense. And so you got to train. I'd say you got to train hard. You got to pray hard. You got to build your team hard, and you got to work real hard to move forward and, and try to take advantage of all the opportunities. And I believe that that, if that, you know, if the prayer is part of that combination, at least I found for myself that if you use that, then there is, there usually is a response. Like, it, you know, you can blow it off and say, Oh, that was a coincidence. Like in many things that have happened to me, but I've learned there are no such thing as coincidences. There may be people that turn this broadcast on that were, don't even listen to the station that you're on or, or, or no, your, your channel, the diamond experience. And then I know it. 
but they end up watching it anyway, or listening to it anyway, and hearing something, one thing out of the, all the words I've said that was meant for them to hear. And I think that if we expect those kind of miracles, expect those type of, that kind of assistance from heaven, if we expect uh, that, that you're not, that we're not alone and that there is a plan, there's a real plan. You just got to find out what it is. And so that's, that's the first part. And then work your behind off. Very good advice. Uh, last thing, I know you mentioned your social media before, but can you uh, let everybody know your website and all of your social media addresses so the listeners can follow you? Oh yeah. My brand new stuff. It's like, I have like, a, I have new toys. Um, my my website is Kirk Taylor Official. So it's K I R K T A Y L O R. KirkTaylorOfficial dot com is my um, my website. On Twitter and on uh, Instagram, I am I am Kirk Taylor. You put the at sign, of course, at I am Kirk Taylor. Um, let's see. So that's my and then my I have a fan page. Kirk, you know, Facebook dot com forward slash Kirk Taylor fan page. And so I'm on. Uh, I'm on Facebook as well. So I'd love to hear from folks and love to hear their thoughts about the stuff I've shared and maybe open up a dialogue and, and uh, let them know what I'm going to be doing. So, cause I don't even know what I'm going to be doing. So that's the exciting part. It's like, I'm literally, I've got, I'm on the deck of the ship and we're moving forward and uh, we'll see where this, where this destination lands. But I've, I've got to, you know, I'm, I'm happy I had a chance to share some of it with, uh, with you, Derek, and with the audience and, uh, I'm very, very excited. We'll see. We'll see where we go. And then, of course, I said the revival movie. It's www.revivalthemovie.com. Awesome stuff. Well, Kirk, thank you so much for taking the time to have this really awesome discussion. It was great. I enjoyed it, Derek. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity, this platform, and for having a great listening ear and some good questions, too, man. Thank you for that. Thanks again to Kirk Taylor. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and Instagram, as well as check out his website to find out what he'll be up to next. For next week's show is going to be a very special roundtable about the process of making a short film with Steve Wise and Kevin Almodovar, who both helped me tremendously on my film, The Parker Syndrome. So I'm sure we'll be touching on that as well. But just talking about, you know, what do you have to do? What are the steps you should take? if you want to make a short film. So I'm really excited about that. Hopefully you guys come back next week and check out that awesome roundtable. But until then, you can check out past episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher Radio. Just search for The Derek Diamond Experience and be sure to leave a review. The more reviews you leave, the more I become visible to the podcasting public, which helps out the exposure for the show. So if you could do that, I would very much appreciate it. You can also follow the show on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Podcast. And as always, thank you to my close friends, the Unicorn Wranglers, for providing the theme music for the podcast. Their songs Late Night Drive Through and Light and Jazzy can be found on their latest album, Greetings from the Space Van, which is available on Apple Music, Google Play, and Spotify. And I think that's going to wrap things up for this week's show. So thank you once again to Kirk Taylor. Be sure to come back next week for the roundtable with Steve and Kevin. Enjoy the rest of your week. Have a safe and fun weekend. And we'll see you guys back here next Thursday.